Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Answers to the Universe. In this episode, we sit down with one of the original platform engineers at Ava Labs and one of the smartest people I've ever met, Aaron Buckwald. Today, we talk about what makes creating an L1 so unbelievably difficult, how the laws of physics get in the way of engineering, as well as how Teleporter, the latest killer feature in Avalanche, could change the game. A truly great conversation. This is Aaron Bookwald. Yo. Yo, how you doing, brother? Doing good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Are you in the podcast room? Uh, no, no, I'm just in my apartment. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, sick, man. Dude, I, yeah. how have you been, man? It's been a minute. Yeah, um, I've been good. Uh, when's the last time I saw you? Was it in uh, South Korea, I think? It might have been Korea. Yeah. I think it was Korea. That's such a crazy statement that I never thought I'd say when I was like 25. I was just like, when's the last time I was, oh, it's South Korea, man. It was just, yeah, oh, you know. right? Right? <laughs> Literally. Since, uh, there's so many crazy things we do, but that's one of the ones that calls it out. It's just like, oh, yeah, when's the last time I saw you? Like, oh, yeah, we were in South Korea. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's one of the beautiful things about this space, though, about this job, honestly. Okay, so as is, as a, an engineer, you know the ins and outs of these large decentralized systems oh. for the most part. You know, I mean, probably no one in the world's an expert, but you know, you're 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 up there with people that have probably the largest um, understanding of this. Do you think it's like a perfect system's possible for and, and defining like a perfect system as in like one unified like value of exchange? Like, you know, you could even define like the Nasdaq as being that. Um, is that even possible? Um, like probably not. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a hard thing. It's um, like I think going towards more simple not not simple in terms of easy, but simple in terms of based on very root level laws of nature uh, fields like math and physics. You're almost always looking for these like perfect explanations of things. And distributed systems is just so yeah. much more messy than that. So like you might be able to, and even, even in those fields where it's like, we should have a perfect way to describe how things work. You so quickly get into so many things that are just like, yeah, like the whole system works out perfectly. One plus one equals two, all of this stuff. And then even in those fields that everybody thinks of as like plain and simple and easy to reason about, even in those right. fields, there's usually some line where it crosses over from like the well-understood aspect to holy shit are things messy. Whether that's like, Quantum theory does not yeah. actually align perfectly with classical physics, but classical physics describes almost everything in the world significantly better. And you don't have to worry about that at all. Uh, it's like, okay, well then it gets really messy and people don't actually know what the answer is today. Or if you look at math, and yeah. I think there's, I don't know the names of these proofs. I'm not a mathematician or physicist. So if this is way off base or I'm actually making terrible points, someone please correct me on Twitter, I guess. But uh, you know, even in math, I don't think there is actually a proof that, all of the laws of mathematics are true. We sort of have to take some of them as axioms and then build everything else on that. But there's not like a proof right. of the, those basic axioms. And, and there was actually, there was a really interesting short story that Meg Fitzgerald uh, sent me. It's, um, I think I have it here. Oh no, I gave it back to her. Uh, but there was a really interesting short story about a math professor who like is, is brilliant. And she comes mm -hmm. up with some proof that the initial laws of math that everyone assumes are true is false. And then everything sort of starts to fall apart. And it's, it's not actually that far off. Like there's, I don't think there is actually a proof of correctness and it's in almost anything that you do. There's, you, 
uh, peel back the layers a bit and everything sort of starts to fall apart or get messier. And distributed systems is pretty messy too. Like just look on crypto Twitter and you can see that it's pretty messy at the highest yeah. level. So, you know, everybody sort of agreed in mass. It's, it's very like messy. What there yeah. is going on in, in distributed systems, blockchain, because there's money to be made, obviously nobody agrees and everybody's showing their backs to a certain extent. But then even when you get to the engineers and the, the uh, theoretical people and academics, what you have is a group of, what you usually have is a group of engineers that will just tell you a set of trade-offs and say, look, it's different. And they'll say, this might be better in some cases, it might be worse in others. And that's the vast majority of research, you know, <laughs> just here's something that's different yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's it. Right. And, you know, hopefully it's different in some useful way in some set of circumstances, but as you sort of move the, move everything forward, usually it's different and not entirely clear that it's better than everything else. And very rarely is just purely better. And when you do have those innovations or those papers that are like, this is better along every dimension that we care about. It's obviously great. You've very clearly moved the ball forward. Uh, but a lot of the iterations are not doing that. There's something that's a little bit different, works under right. a slightly different model. Uh, Snow, like Avalanche is a very good example of something that's like, well, it yeah. has trade-offs, right? It's not just purely better than everything else. It's actually under a certain set of assumptions that you might say, oh, this works better here. Um, and it's, it's the same with pretty much everything. So I, I would be surprised if there's just some perfect version of the system. The, the more likely yeah. thing to me is that you get to the point where you have enough of all of the things that you need and you sort of stop caring. Um, yeah. 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 So to, to quote in other books, I, I've been reading a lot. Uh, there's uh, The Innovator's Dilemma <laughs> is, a, is a great book. I just read this past weekend. Uh, it was a mm -hmm. recommendation from Patrick. And one of the things that it talks about is how uh, competition between products changes as the life cycle of the product goes on. And at the beginning, you have a product where like a bunch of people wanted it, sort of the early adopters that wanted it's imperfect it doesn't, and it competes along some dimension where it's, it doesn't have everything that you want of that thing. So the more of it you have, you know, the better people will want more of it. And then you get to a point where there's, you know, a more competitive market, but still people aren't supplying as much of that thing, that main dimension people care about that they want. Okay. And so the competition remains along that axis of, can you supply more of this at a cheaper cost? Right. And the, the market will sort of eat that up if you can, and people compete to provide more of it. And then you get to a certain point where the people building better and better systems start to get upset uh, is basically where they say, okay, well, actually your customers, you've satisfied them, that you provide enough of X uh, that the customers are no longer care if you provide more of X because you're already providing enough. And at that point, they just don't care, yeah. right? And so in blockchain, what, what might that mean? That might mean, well, latency is under 100 milliseconds. Throughput is higher than the actual demand. And we've figured out some way that that doesn't just lead to there being more MEV opportunities on chain that, that eats it up, which I, I do think is probably possible to mm -hmm. avoid that conundrum. And all of a sudden, well, we say, okay, there's some distributed network. And although there's many different trust assumptions that you might have along the dimensions of liveness and safety, you can build these systems such that you're not worried about it uh, to the extent where you, you don't care, right? And it's at that point, what do you compete along? And that becomes a bit more about either branding or even more Either branding or it's just a commodity that people mm -hmm. don't care and they'll just buy it wherever they can. Um, it could yeah. very well go that yeah. way. So that, that, that's interesting. And I made a video. It's called like, uh, this is pretty much like almost describing like what they call the S curve of yeah. innovation as well. Um, you know, it's when like, there's like a period where like the differences in innovation or, and I guess what they're describing is like how easily satisfied are the customers where it's like you make these improvements and the customers just blow their mind. We're seeing that probably, we probably saw that this week with the VR headsets. Yeah. I think 
um, with Apple Vision yeah. Pro. Um, and then I'm sure, you know, we're going to see a bunch of great improvements and then it's going to set along where, you know, customers don't really notice a difference anymore. Um, where do you think uh, we are, you know, and to your best guess, because there's really no way to know, um, where are we uh, along this this curve or on this innovation journey with uh, blockchain? And I guess from your perspective, I would say that we're nowhere close to the point of people having enough of the dimension, dimensions that they care about. Um, you know, fees, fees are reasonably high. Uh, throughput is n- not as high as we want it to be. And latency is, uh, is still a trade-off. And we're getting close to the point where depending on how you want to expose that to the user, you might be able to, to change whether or not that's the case. Uh, because for example, right now, if you want to have consensus over a global network, you're going to have at least one round trip time over across that global network, which is going to incur at least like 500 milliseconds, uh, right? Just you can look up, actually, there's a great AWS interregency graph that I really like showing people. I don't know if I can share my screen on here, but I think this graph is really cool. So I'm going to... It, it, it's all audio. It's all audio. Um, oh, okay. So you just Never mind. Um, well, there's yeah. this great graph. Just easier. It's just easier to produce. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. There's this great graph on latency.bluegoat.net. So anybody that's listening in and wants to check it out, uh, it shows the latency between any two regions <laughs> of AWS, which is obviously highly advanced. Uh, and so it's probably on the lower end of what it might take for a node in Europe and let's say Milan to talk to another node in Tel Aviv. Uh, and on the high end, you have around, I think, 400 milliseconds is on the high end. And at that point, right, uh, for a single round trip time, if you want to coordinate any network, come to real consensus, you're obviously going to have to have people talk to each other and hear some response back. It's very, very simple. If you're going to have some consensus protocol, you have to send a message and get some response. It's the basic building block of every consensus protocol. The idea that we would have some consensus protocol that doesn't require that Mm -hmm. would basically require quantum entanglement or or something along those lines. And (laughs) although we can definitely improve inter-region latency on uh, from AWS, uh, other services at all the different, you know, cloud providers and home, uh, home computers, anything that's out there, data centers, whatever, um, it's still going to be around there. And that's based on sort of the laws of physics. Uh, You can potentially get a little bit faster using stuff like Starlink, where you're literally competing against the laws of physics getting yeah. to that point where we're actually going to beam it up and then light is going to travel through space instead of through air and then beam it back down to earth. And that makes it faster, but you're still right. competing against the laws of physics there. And you probably still end up with round trip time latency that for if it's probably around 500 milliseconds, maybe a little bit less, or maybe you have a network that is more concentrated in one area. But even at that point, there's, it's pretty well studied that I think it's at 100 millisecond latency is what appears to be instantaneous to the user. And I think that level of latency yeah. is what, once we get there, that's where people stop caring. And we're very clearly not there yet. And it's not clear at all how we would get there yeah. at any point, right? Because if you have right. this round trip time and you're competing against the laws of physics in order to break that boundary, you probably won't get there. And so when you have that yeah. level of latency and you're saying, okay, the level of latency that's required in order to get to the point where people stop caring about getting more of that thing, that lower latency, you're competing against the laws of physics. It's very unlikely that we actually break that barrier. So what do you do then? Do you just continually compete, see how close you can get, minimize the number of round trip times involved in the protocol, Mm -hmm. have something around uh, 200, 500 milliseconds. Another alternative is that people end up talking to blockchains that are decentralized and how they talk to each other, but maybe they talk to their local hub so that they can see less than 100 millisecond latency to talk to it. 
that's another possibility as well. Uh, another trade-off that you know people could do is to actually just see optimistic confirmation of their transactions is something that a couple of different protocols are doing. Ethereum does this in a pretty aggressive way where you know people see their transactions as not finalized, but they start to make decisions off of it as soon as it's issued uh, or as soon as it's included in a block, even though it's yeah. not finalized for another 12 minutes or so. Or, or layer twos, you know, their notion of finality is probably based off of when something <laughs> is posted to Ethereum, which can be seven days out, or if it's uh, a ZKL to probably two minutes at minimum, uh, you start to look at stuff like that. And you say, well, what, what am I actually going to care about here? And you start to say, well, if that's what I'm targeting, and that's what people are going to care the most about, what types of trade offs do I want to make in the user experience, what they actually get shown in order to maybe give the experience of 100 millisecond latency, uh, so that there's a better user experience. And if people are okay with that, and then they realize they actually don't care about the full finality, then we start to see a whole host of different trade-offs at the product level, um, as well as how do those how do those user experience like optimistic confirmation, how can you weave that into the protocol such that it has as high of a success rate as possible? So there's still a very low probability of an, une- an unexpected event occurring. Um, so that was a pretty yeah. long-winded way of it, saying, you know, it, it's very interesting. We don't know what will happen yet. It comes down, I, in my opinion, to That's what true. trade-offs users actually want to make. And what we've seen so far is that users don't care that much about security. And it's usually blockchain engineers that are sort of trying to come up with a justification for we need to have this level of security or we ought to do it this way. So it'll be it'll be very interesting because so far these narratives have been built by the engineers or the people defining these protocols in order to fit their ethos. But if, uh, but we've also seen that yeah. successful applications can sort of reshape that narrative of what's required. And a lot of successful applications don't care about that stuff because the users don't care. And so if we start to see these yeah. protocol designers, you know, like myself, competing with the application designers to say how the system should work, you know, the application design, there's a very good chance that the application designers would win. Uh, and then we start to shift what the priorities are of a, of a network. Uh, because then maybe... The application designer set the narrative, and then everybody sort of competes to provide them the best, uh, the best stack. The situation we're in now is there's so few applications that you have the protocol designers like myself having these arguments on crypto Twitter about how things ought to work. Where most people sort of look at it. And I think Dom actually had a pretty funny tweet where he just said, uh, he was reading the Rick's blog post, and he's like, I've read this 10 times. I have no idea what it means, but it makes me so bullish. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is this is great. <laughs> it's a pretty pretty funny quote. I, I thought it was yeah. great, uh, but like that's kind of how things work now because there's not those application designers that are saying, here's why this network is better for my application and for my users, and here are a hundred thousand, a million, ten million, a hundred million users or a billion that say, yeah, I use this. Right? That's when pe- that's what really matters at the end of the day. Yeah, ab- absolutely, and. Uh... There, there's a there's a few things I want to say uh, on that. First, I, I know when you're talking about latency, I just want to specify like people don't understand like how continents communicate with each other. Is there's pipes that go under the ocean with um, I guess the the intercontinental uh, I forget what it was called like intercontinental like internet cables or yeah. something. Um, so it quite literally is like the laws of physics, and uh, I do like 100% agree with um the fact that like. The app designers will probably have the say at the end of the day, but there's also a lot of clever things they can do with that. I mean, like, like Max, uh, they, they can like 
make the user feel like the transaction was was like literally done in a, under 100 milliseconds without actually doing that. Um, like Max famously, when you turn them on, they make you log in and then they load. But for like psych- psychologically, it makes it feel like it's a faster computer. Although with Windows, it's like, it's the opposite. But Windows feels slower just because it boots and then you log in. Um, so there's like weird trade-offs you can make and like psychological tricks that you can have. Oh. Um like, like I think Solana does. It's like the transactions feel like they go like that, but I think their finality is like, what, like five seconds yeah. or something? Something like that. Um, and so, I mean, the closest you can get, the better. And like at the end of the day, finality like absolutely does matter because you want to make decisions on the results of um, of chains. But it, yeah, it is, uh, I'm super interested to see like, what are the use cases that really like, challenge us and kind of like kick our asses a bit like we like we literally saw inscriptions that was one of the most unexpected curveballs i think we'll probably ever see and i'm just dreading when they come back in the bull market when like we 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 need them to not be here first but yeah it it, it is it is interesting like the, the decisions you have to make for sure yeah um so oh go ahead oh sorry i I do want to talk about inscriptions a little bit. <laughs> so now we're like, sure. What's uh, what do you want to talk about? Because because I'm sure we probably had opposite experiences for that, right? Because like I'm I'm a marketer. I'm on the yeah. I'm on the front. Oh yeah, lines. we definitely had different experiences. And you were getting all the tweets of like the EVM's broken and like all these like getting added a million times of like we need to fix this. Yeah. Like make make the C chain faster, <laughs> dude. How was how was your experience there? Yeah. So the worst thing that you can say in any crisis is that the system worked exactly as intended right? (laughs) The worst thing that you can tell anyone in the world that is upset is that the system was designed to work exactly the way that it's working. And they're, you know, like they're wrong to be upset. That's the worst thing you can possibly do. So I won't, I won't say that the system worked exactly as intended, but what I will describe briefly is that the way the dynamic fee algorithm works on the C chain uh, is pretty much that as demand increases above target capacity, uh, the prices will go up. And so if people are willing to pay for fees at a certain very, very high price to the extent where they fill the entire capacity at that price, the price won't go back down. Um, so we've seen other chains that take a first come first serve basis instead have a similar failure to serve all of the traffic because there's just a backlog of transactions. For uh, for our case, uh, when you have this dynamic fee mechanism in order to basically price out the people that don't want to pay as high of a fee, the system basically rewards the people that are willing to pay the highest highest fees, uh, which leads to some people having a negative experience because they're used to a very, very low fee. And there's a lot of different ways that you can handle this. Uh, the one that we talked about a lot around the time of inscriptions was the real way to handle this is multidimensional fees because they're not actually using very much the network fees at all uh, or the network resources. If you look at the fees at the time, uh, the fees skyrocketed, obviously. So that's uh, not what we want. Uh, or that's, you know, not what, mo- not, that's not what users want to see, but at the same time, the nodes themselves were actually not floored by any means. The nodes themselves were having no trouble processing that transaction workload. Uh, and the reason for that is that it wasn't actually very heavy computation on the system. Uh, the transactions might've been, it might've been a little bit more data to store, but none of that data was really being stored inside of the, the EVM state. It was all just this call data. Uh, so that didn't pose a very large problem. You don't actually need to store all of that data, all of those transactions forever, unless you want to provide an, an API index. So we released around that time uh, an extra config option where you can disable those transaction indices. 
uh, and you know that'll reduce the overhead significantly. And additionally, the inscriptions were not actually using any on-chain computation. That was the entire model was to post data via this call data on-chain and defer all of the execution to some off-chain indexer. And when we saw that, you know, okay, so they're not actually using the network resources. Therefore, if they're pricing everybody else out that does want to use on-chain execution, that means that we're not uh, giving the, the, those people as much, there's leftover capacity, right? And you don't want to have a system where all of your normal users are priced out of the system. And at the same time, you still have leftover capacity because the goal of this capacity mechanism is you have some target capacity and you want to raise prices when you're above that. So the way that this system is designed where there's a single dimension to fees is, okay, well, we're significantly above target capacity, but that's not actually the reality. And that's why there's such an interest in having multi-dimensional fees and why we tried to stick with that as sort of the solution is because we do actually have a higher capacity than that. And in another way, it, the system did work as intended with the fees designed the way they are, where there's only one dimension. So in the long term, the two options are realistically uh, multi-dimensional fees and increase the total capacity of the system as well, uh, which for us, we want to do relatively slowly on the EVM as we continue to release more improvements and are more currently more focused on having people scale via subnets. But we don't want to do that at the expense of scaling the C chain as well, because obviously that's incredibly critical. Obviously, people care a lot about moving funds on the C chain, and obviously that's sort of a, a natural hub and, and sp uh, for the entire network. So we want people to be able to use it, but we want to do it safely and conservatively. Since if you have this network of many other blockchains that all sort of depend on the C chain, you obviously want to make that the safest place possible. You want to sort of expand that conservatively. And so we're trying to balance those dual interests between people that want to see higher capacity there, as well as the fact that, you know, it is the hub of this entire system and we want to make sure that it's safe and don't want to approach any sort of walls of performance too quickly. But yeah, I didn't yeah, have a good time. That was, absolutely. <laughs> that was wild. That was wild. But then it, it disappeared. I'm happy it disappeared. I was afraid they would just be like the, the new the new norm. Yeah, I mean, if you looked at um, the numbers of how so, how much they were paying, it was like, mm -hmm. I think it was getting to $10 million a day that they were paying on fees. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, it was because like the fees determined the price of the asset, you know? So it's like the more congested yep. the network was, the more these inscriptions were worth. And so they were like incentivized to spam the network as much as possible because that made their their you know inscriptions worth yeah. more and uh and it, and it is kind of hilarious um like i think like the community that was using inscriptions was significantly larger than like the community that we see on twitter which is kind of wild yeah. like it's like it's like we we had more users that were that we onboarded through inscriptions than we had like most of our other efforts combined yeah. And but like we just like never saw them because Twitter's Twitter's banned in China and a lot of them came from China. Um, it was it was super interesting. Did and, you did you, you hear know, much I, about I, I where did. they came from? I know I think we had one conversation with part of the team, but I, I don't know what it, uh, it led to as it sort of um, fanned out a little bit. Yeah. I wasn't part of like future conversations, but what do you know? What sparked uh, that initial interest and in that just sort of blow up? I mean, it was across networks, but it became most popular on Avalanche. It seemed. It did. It did. I think it came from, uh, I think Bitcoin inscriptions were super popular. And then they went to Solana and like, and like Bitcoin's like the silliest network. Cause it's just like, 
you know, it wasn't meant for anything complicated. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not meant to do anything except for just exchange stuff. And so people were doing goofy stuff with that. And those inscriptions got worth a lot. And then Solana did it. Those inscriptions got worth a lot. And we were kind of like the third wave of, of that trend. But it kind of all came from Bitcoin because people were still figuring yeah. out, okay, like what can we do with this network that's other than um, just a store, of, a store of value or digital gold? Um, so it's, yeah, this space is weird. You, you never know what's going to happen next, which is, you know, the exciting part, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying. It was, so what... What do, what do you work on typically? Like like what features come out that you kind of feel like, oh, this is kind of my baby? Uh, so the biggest one right now is Warp is coming to the EVM. Uh, so we've been working on this one for about a year. Is that uh, you? Yeah, I was uh, primarily working on the integration into the EVM. Uh, so that one, we just released the pre-release for Testnet, uh, which is going live in, I believe, a week and a half now. Uh, so that's going to be one of the biggest features that we've released to date. Uh, so this entire vision of multiple blockchains, multiple subnets that are able to talk to each other seamlessly has been a part of the vision since the very beginning. And since Warp has existed since uh, late last year, uh, so, you know, about a, a little over a year ago now, um, this the vision has been there of exactly how we would do that, essentially with the P-Chain as this membership registry that any blockchain can use in order to read the validator side of each other and send messages and verify them. Uh, but integrating to the EVM is actually the first step to putting that into practice, since that's what most people are using today. So the C chain is going to be launching that on testnet in that, that week and a half. Uh, and this has also been integrated into subnet EVM. So you'll be able to see all of the different EVM chains on Avalanche, including on the primary network with the C chain, able to talk to each other via Avalanche board messaging for the first time. Uh, so I think that's going to sh- unlock a lot of uh, new innovation. And there's a lot of teams that are already very interested in integrating it. And it does give them a really nice primitive to work with. So I think the entire company has been extremely excited about that for the, the past year. Because that <laughs> is what people have been telling me. So that's that's the biggest one. Um, and then recently, I've actually shifted away from, from working on the EVM. So I'm going to be starting to work on consensus research. And I, I started that in the past month and a half or so. So actually, going back to our conversation about uh, distributed system design and this entire field of research and different trade-offs that you might might make. I'm essentially going to be working in that space of trying to reduce the number of round trip times, uh, assuming that that's what's necessary. I might do a little bit of work on quantum entanglement communication, but probably not since I don't have a physics background for it and don't think that's likely to happen in the next five to 10 or 20 years or ever. I don't know. Uh, so going to be mostly focused on reducing the number of round trip times necessary to, uh, to confirm transactions of the protocol, increase throughput, and sort of define the, the network model that we want to use in order to model Lunch where, where snow makes sense uh, and start to figure out those trade-offs there. Um, so that, that's what I'll be shifting to work on in the, in the future. But prior to that, I'd been working on the EVM that's for sick, the past three years or so. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, dude, you know, I guess teleporter and AWM, those are like two of the things that we can't wait for. And uh, like the interoperability is something that I feel like the whole space is kind of like rushing towards right now. Um, like all the bridge companies are all like pivoting to some interoperability solution, whether that be layer zero, whether that be a uh, chain link, whether that be wormhole. Um, what, what, what makes Avalanche Warp messaging like native within the Avalanche ecosystem, 
advantageous over a, a third party thing that has a lot of venture capital. <laughs> that's a, that's a great description of the alternative. Third party I get, thing I get has, asked this a lot. You get specifically get that question, a third party thing with a ton of venture capital money behind it. Is that, <laughs> is that how people pose the questions? <laughs> well, not, yeah. <laughs> that, that's me reading so in between I the lines I receive no there. venture capital for my work on work. Uh, so I can tell you right now. <laughs> uh, there's no venture capital behind avalanche short messaging. Uh, so yeah, the, if you look at any cross chain messaging protocol, uh, there's a, there's one SOK systemization of knowledge paper that I like to reference, which basically says a very simple fact, which is that if you have two blockchains or two distinct distributed systems that are going to talk to each other, there needs to be some trusted third party that says what happened on one chain to the other. And the reason for this is essentially you assume those two are distinct. Uh, you have to have some proof that blockchain one said something to blockchain two and some way to authenticate that. So you see any number of different cross-chain interoperability protocols out there uh, have different methods of defining that authentication to chain two, what happened on chain one. Uh, and a lot of these come with some, as I mentioned, trusted third party, which is fairly centralized. Uh, and so that means that if you have chain one talks to chain two, but in order to do that, uh, there's some off-chain aggregator or relayer that says, I saw this transaction. I'm going to tell chain two that I saw this transaction. Here's what is going to happen on chain two. Then you might have a single admin address that just dictates what happens. And so they just sort of relay that information over. And as long as that person is trusted and operates correctly, everything works out okay. And in the case where that person is you know, trusted and operates correctly, everything is great. Right, because that's fairly cheap. It's fairly simple, and that's what a lot of protocols that that exist today look like. Uh, the next layer is you sort of get to this multi-sig type world, and there's been a lot of bridges that operate under this multi-sig type world. And beyond that, you get to some sort of proof of consensus, uh, where let's say like this is the IBC world, where there's basically uh, chain one has some validator set, and chain two will essentially on chain maintain some light client that says here's a proof that chain one accepted some block do some action on chain two because of what happened over there. Um, and this is the starting to get more decent into a more decentralized model where essentially you're saying, we're actually going to verify the state of consensus on the other chain using this like clients so that we're getting the same trust, uh, the same trust assumption as if uh, we were actually verifying everything. Right. And so that's much more decentralized. So if you care about that, if you want the full verifiability, you're going to be in a much better place with that than using an admin address or some constricted set of uh, multi-sig. So the thing that comes with that in IBC, I'm going to stand up. Um, the thing that comes with that you got is it. it also comes with this point-to-point -point connection where you have to manage that entire system, uh, which is sort of the, the one drawback with IBC. And there's a lot of other protocols that are like this. So I'll just kind of describe them as one set of protocols. And those point-to-point -point connections end up having a, a decent bit of overhead. And so the beautiful and nice thing about Avalanche Port Messaging is that it actually uses one third trusted third party to provide the validator set for all of the different subnets that want to talk to each other. And that is essentially the Avalanche P-Chain. And the Avalanche P-Chain, like I mentioned before, serves as this membership registry for the validator sets of every different subnet that is out there. So that if subnet uh, one wants to talk to subnet two, subnet one's validator set can sign a message and subnet two can actually look up on the P-Chain, the validator set of subnet one in order to verify that signature. And so, you know, you can read the, the exact details in the documentation for how that works. Uh, it's using BLS multi-signatures, which is a really nice, powerful protocol. Uh, and the really nice thing about this is that instead of maintaining those point-to-point -point connections, 
you actually only need read access to the P chain. And then to receive that message via some uh, relayer, off-chain relayer could be taken care of by the validators themselves as well. Uh, and then they can verify the validator set of the P chain and verify that message was signed by an up-to-date validator set from, uh, from that subnet that's sending the message. So this alleviates a lot of the overhead of managing all of the connections between different chains, which makes it much more efficient for this world where we expect or want there to be lots of different blockchains talking to each other. Uh, and it, that's the main benefit of Warp, which is a really nice, uh, a really nice design that it removes a lot of that overhead. How performant is it? How performant is it? Uh, that's a great question. Can you be more specific? <laughs> um, so I, I, I guess we'll find out when it's when it's when it's live. I guess. Um, but do these do these like does the bridging feel quick? So let's just say you know I teleporter. Yeah. I want to like you know mint an NFT here with funds over there, and someone implements warp messaging in a really clever way. That makes that happen. So how, how long would it, yeah, like, so rough estimate yeah. just... So the, the latency yeah. ends up being roughly two block confirmations, one on each side. Uh, so the validators or subnet are not going to sign a message until the block containing that message gets accepted. And so that means that you're going to end up with at least one block confirmation, or not actually a block confirmation, but the block being accepted on chain one. And then once that happens, you aggregate the signatures and send the message to uh, to the second subnet. and the actual signature aggregation and verification is very, very lightweight. So pretty much the entire latency comes from the time that it takes to issue that transaction to subnet one, uh, confirm that block, and then issue the transaction uh, that takes that sign or aggregates the signatures and takes that signed message and sends it to subnet two, and then it gets accepted there. So it ends up being about one block confirmation or the time to issue from issuing a transaction to that block getting accepted on chain one to the time that it takes to observe that so that, you know, these get piled on top of each other as opposed to being able to be performed in parallel. And then observe that, aggregate the signatures is very quick and then issue the transaction and watch it get accepted in, in subnet two. So it ends up being roughly those two block confirmations. So it should be on the order of two to four seconds. Um, and that's assuming an average where you're saying that blocks are confirmed on both subnets at roughly every two seconds. So that on average, if you issue a transaction, let's say you issue a transaction and it could be anywhere in that window between zero or seconds where the last block was just confirmed and two seconds where the next one is, where you assume, mm -hmm. okay, it's just going to be an even distribution where you're issuing a transaction there. So you could issue it at the exact one second mark, and then it gets included in the next block one second later. And then, you know, you aggregate the signatures, observe that, uh, and send the transaction to the next one, and you end up with that same zero to two second range, roughly. Uh, and then beyond that, you're going to see the performance depend on the exact dynamic B configuration for both of those subnets. Uh, and, you know, at this point I'm getting into yep. the, it's all an engineering trade-off part of the conversation where I say it's a, it's a complicated question. Right. Uh, it depends <laughs> on how you parameterize both of those subnets, what block time that you want, uh, as well as yep. what the to target gas limit is going to be on both of those subnets, just like we talked about with the uh, inscriptions. And you're going to see probably the combination of performance from both subnets. So if both subnets are targeting a block being confirmed every one second, you'll probably see between one and two second confirmation for uh, one subnet going to the other. That's awesome. So I, I, my next question, I want to take it back. So you, you've been on, you've, you've worked for Ava Labs for a long time, right? Uh, yeah, I think I'm coming up on five years now. Coming up on five years. Yep, think, uh... So five years ago, 
did you have any idea what you're getting into? Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> uh, five years ago, I was a freshman at Cornell University. Uh, and I wanted to get involved in some type of CS research. So actually, five years ago today, I had probably just started. Wait, is it more than? No, yeah, five years ago. Yeah, five. Um, five years ago today, I had just started working for an aerospace engineering lab at Cornell called Space Systems Design Studio. Uh, that was with Professor Mason Peck, uh, who was the former CTO of, uh, of NASA. And I was that was my first job in research when I was at Cornell. And I got really motivated and inspired to go into research, actually because that professor, Mason Peck, gave a, a talk about research versus engineering, where he, I think he uh, wanted to do research after his experience at NASA. And I think the way that he described it was along the lines of research is where you figure out how to do new things. Engineering is where you do things that somebody else told you how to do, uh, which, you know, the gist of the conversation was research is way more interesting and for all the smarter people and me being an ambitious freshman in university, I was like, I'm one of the smarter people. I want to do that. Uh, but be beyond that, I, I always had this notion that I wanted to do either research or entrepreneurship or some way that I would always be at the cutting edge. Uh, and be doing something new so that I wouldn't get get bored. I you know get sort of easily bored and uh, wanted to be doing something new all the time. Uh, so I thought that research or entrepreneurship were the two great tracks for that. And very quickly when I started working in aerospace as a, a CS major, I realized that although I was in a research adjacent or a research like field, uh, I was doing what the aerospace engineers or aerospace uh, students had already come up with and just programming that into a CubeSat. And so I thought pretty quickly okay, this is great for now, but what I really want to get into is CS research. And Goon was a professor at Cornell at the time. And so he was one of the names that had already popped up on my list and uh, of people to reach out to. And I unfortunately uh, didn't at the time or, or originally, but eventually sent a sent an email out. Actually, uh, somebody sent an email to, to me, a club that I was in on campus and threw my, my hat in the ring and was lucky enough to, to get an email back and got the opportunity to, to start really, really early on and have a great experience. And at the time, it was still uh, the company was still out of Cornell, so in Ithaca, New York, uh, and it was a really great experience because the entire team at the time was just a couple of uh, PhD students, uh, goon. It was just a room full of absolutely brilliant people, and me being you know a very eager to learn, uh, rising sophomore in college, people actually took the time to help me learn, and you know they say that the best place to learn in the world is to be the dumbest person in the room, and I can tell you without a doubt that I was the dumbest person in the room at that time. Uh, and the second part of that is the larger the difference between you and everyone else, the faster you will get up to speed and learn. And the difference was, <laughs> so I was learning really fast and they were fantastic mentors. And I, I got it, you know, incredibly lucky to have this opportunity to be here. And, uh, they, they were incredible mentors to me that entire time. So, yeah. Uh, but at that time I was really just interested in doing some research, uh, working with a professor that could, uh, that was working on something interesting and Avalab since the very beginning was very clearly that, uh, you know, I, I watched that 15 minute video of Goon explaining avalanche consensus. in I think 2018, uh, and he was a brilliant speaker, a really brilliant speaker. And you could tell how much time he had put into working in blockchain starting from 2003, as well as working in distributed systems for a long time before that as well. Um, you could tell how brilliant of a guy that he was, and he was definitely somebody that I want to surround myself with and work with and, uh, hopefully learn from and, I was incredibly lucky to have that opportunity to be here. That's awesome. So 
But I definitely never saw any of this you, coming. I never, I never thought that the team would include. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> I, I did not see any of this coming. No, this was a, a crazy transition. And it, this was my first job in crypto too. And so all of the craziness that kind of comes with crypto, I had not really been exposed to it. So, so much, much crazy. crazy. I, I feel like this industry is like nothing else. Yeah, um, yeah. It feels a bit at times like professional sports, which I, I feel almost bad or ridiculous saying because it's a ridiculous comparison. But there's a certain amount of like idolization that goes into how people treat um, treat these protocols because it makes them you know so much money. Uh, so people get dedicated to it to yep. such a large degree. It feels a bit like that, uh, which is absolutely bizarre because you know none of us. Right. <laughs> it feels ridiculous. We're just people. Yeah, yeah. We're just we're just people, and yeah. I mean, there's a humongous community out there um, that like literally worships and like spends all like like I, I you can't even fathom like okay who would spend all day on like tesla twitter or something uh-huh. you know what i mean where it's like you just talking to all, everybody else about tesla and, te- and that's it it might exist but i feel like it doesn't exist in the same way it does in crypto yeah. you know what i mean it's um there's so much baked in community within these decentralized protocols because i mean it's almost like a video yeah. game you know everyone joins you know we find our clan or whatever we uh you know customize our character in the in the yeah, in the sense of you get an nft you put it on your your profile picture and there's uh, a leaderboard that we call coin market cap okay of, of who's who's doing the best whose clan's doing the best and to, to wrap it all together um there's a mythical origin story that nobody quite understands <laughs> with uh, the satoshi white paper yeah you know the so mythical like, origin story really it's puts quite the, the bow on it or the cherry on top it's just pretty crazy it really is <laughs> right, the virgin right. birth of crypto it's it's really crazy. and it the, is it literally Ethereum is. too is this pseudo virgin birth like one level detached uh but it, it's really amazing to have that kind of that kind of origin story it just adds to the romanticism of the entire it thing is. It is. So, so you kind of just like stumbled into um, crypto just because you wanted to do something new. That a was sense. a big part of it. it I was very like. interested in crypto prior to that. I had just never had the opportunity. I was, okay. I was the level, the type of high school student that thought it would be a good idea to. So I, when I was in high school, I was usually the first one there and the last one to leave. And so I thought it would be a good idea to, before I left, take out all of the Chromebooks that were free for students to use, start mining crypto on them, and then get to school first and turn them all off and put them away. So I was the level of student that had that type of thought, but didn't actually do it, Uh, which, you know, I probably would have gotten in a lot of trouble if I did that eventually, but I also probably, you know, probably would have done okay. So I I don't know. (laughs) But I, I was that student that thought that would be interesting but didn't quite do it and i thought that the ideas of crypto were incredibly fascinating well before um well before i actually got involved and you know a lot of people the the barrier to entry is shockingly low to get into crypto in a lot of ways there is an amazing community online discords it's incredibly open but at the same time it was never something that i dove into until i started with apple apps so you know i talked with uh with my cousin a good bit about different different stuff that you could do with blockchain. He was working at a database startup at the time. And we were talking about how you might okay. use blockchain in order to, to handle some of the load that they were seeing. He was working on a company called Mesosphere that actually Anatoly used to work at too. Um, and they were the company that made it. So the way that he described it to me 
they were making this middleware software that would make it so when Justin Bieber broke the internet at the Grammys, uh, all of the servers in the background wouldn't go down. Uh, and so that was like a really interesting project at the time. And the idea was, well, how can we leverage more people as different computers in order to build that type of system? And you know, we had conversations about that, but never did anything. I didn't have anybody pulling me in at the time uh, and didn't take that leap myself until I started with working at Avalabs. But I always thought that the ideas of crypto and of blockchain were incredibly interesting. Do you, do you think about um, like money and value often? Because I, I read probably the unintentionally the uh, the book that kind of like made me the most that like ushered me in from level like eight passionate about crypto to level ten passionate mm-hmm. was a book called Sapiens. It's a pretty pretty famous yeah. book, but it basically just like goes over you know all of humankind and the kind of the point of the book is that like you know most of the stuff like the norms we have are just kind of just there because someone thought it'd be an efficient way to govern a ton of people, but there's like infinite different ways of like, what is, uh, what is normal and and how to govern society. And then it makes you really think about money at a, at a very fundamental level of like, this is just kind of like a, a point system to like help make sure everybody works together and that society is extremely productive. And the more productive the society, you know, the more points they will have and, and whatnot. Um, and then it kind of like you take a step back and you think, well, like, a, you know, the world is globalizing, you know, just based on the Internet. Can we globalize even more? Um, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so how much time do I spend thinking about value and money? Uh, that's a very meta concept. I, I don't know if I can answer. <laughs> Super meta. How much time do I, spend Super about? I guess uh, I guess not that much. <laughs> Okay. That's a fine, that's a fine yeah. answer. That's a, it's a fine great answer, question you know? and not the best answer, but I think that's the reality of, um, I do have those <laughs> you know sort of I mean? meta thoughts about these things, but I, I can't tell you that I have any cogent thought about the direction that things are going. Although I, I do, I definitely agree that the way that we define norms plays such a massive role in society and it's usually totally arbitrary. Um, and yeah, it's always a battle between the people that want to keep things the way that they, they are and where we want to go, uh, which is incredibly interesting to watch. And I would say calling back to the system design aspect, it's really interesting because we sort of set yeah. the design for those systems and what those norms are. And we see them being set on on Twitter too. And it is a much faster feedback cycle to deciding what those norms ought to be um, and a faster evolution yeah. than there are in, in a lot of other aspects of life. So from the design of, you know, if you were ever to work in crypto, I think it's actually a pretty good background to go and be like, to go and work in the government afterwards because you'll just see so many, not that, not in the, in the, but it, in like you see so many iterations of how the system you design has an actual impact on people yeah. and feedback. And it's, it's very interesting. And it's experience you don't get in a lot of different places. It's incredibly rare. Um, yeah. Not that I necessarily. How, how much but, of, uh, how, how much of the system designs is uh, psychology, like anticipating about how historically people have, use money how much of the system design of blockchain are you asking do you think or of avalanche of like of like your decision what do you optimize for what's the most performant solution or maybe there's a decision where it's okay well humans typically act in this way whenever we set up something this way you know it's interesting because going back again to the distributed systems design usually what we're designing against is some sort of arbitrarily defined byzantine adversary that we want to tolerate and sort of the best, uh, the best that we can possibly have of aliveness. Could you 
Pause. Yeah, yeah sure. Can we, can we explain that in like a, a simple term? Uh, yeah. Um, liveness is or which which part? All of them. Okay, all of them. Just like the, yeah. that first sentence. Yeah. yeah. Pause. yeah. Good. Good call to pause. So essentially, when we're talking about distributed system design, <laughs> one of the biggest parts that we think about in blockchains is our resistance to a Byzantine adversary. And Byzantine is basically a term for somebody that is behaving maliciously. Uh, so somebody who is trying to behave arbitrarily in order to corrupt the protocol. So they might be trying to make it so that the protocol doesn't make progress. So in the context of a blockchain, you could say, I'm going to make it so that no more blocks will get accepted and the program is just stalled. So everyone who's using it will see no progress whatsoever. And so a Byzantine adversary that controls, let's say, 10% of the network might be able to, to cause that level of failure, or it might be, and as when you design the system, you probably want to have a higher tolerance to that. So you could design a system where it can tolerate 33% of the network being Byzantine and behaving arbitrarily along some attack vector, or you might be able to say, well, we can actually tolerate 50% or 60%. Uh, that actually gets to being impossible. Or, you know, you might have, it can only tolerate 10%. The additional property that we usually talk about from traditional systems design is safety. So this property basically says nothing bad ever happens. And something bad is defined as two different people who are following the protocol correctly will accept two different blocks of the same height. So consensus obviously means everybody gets on the same page and they agree on the output of the system. Uh, and so a safety failure would be that two people actually follow the protocol correctly, but somehow that actually results in a, in a safety failure. So one person accepts uh, block A that says Avery wins. And then the, you know, the more correct person accepts block B, which says Aaron wins. And so, you know, they're obviously more correct, but somebody accidentally said, said everyone, and that's, you know, it's ridiculous. So we, we don't want to have that. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can define the Byzantine threshold based on, you know, the protocol itself is how much of the network can be Byzantine and the network still maintain those two properties. And then in addition, we have all of the different properties that we were talking about before with how much, how long does it take for me sending a transaction to the network before that actually gets confirmed? So I can say, okay, my transaction is finalized. I can do the next thing, or I know that this is done, as well as what's the total throughput that the system can uh, can handle. And uh, I think most system and protocol designers spend a lot more time thinking about this theoretical world of how much of the network is going to be Byzantine or maximizing how much the network will behave in it, that we can tolerate behaving in a Byzantine way. And much more so of it thinks about that uh, than they spend thinking about what the actual economic incentives are and how people will likely to be behaving. But there is also a decent amount of thought of, you know, the yeah. economic incentives, because we also design these things to be reward, reward systems where people get a reward for behaving virtuously. Yeah. They might get punished for behaving in a Byzantine or malicious manner. Um, and the reality is that, you know, having maintained this network or worked on this network for a number of years in production, there's very little Byzantine behavior, actually. Uh, there's very few people that we've observed <laughs> the people modifying the clients in order to try and break the network in some way. Uh, and so that's a very interesting fold when it comes to making decisions about how to modify the protocol, because you might say, well, in practice, uh, this never happens. So we don't have to worry about it that much. And we can make different trade-offs. But at the same time, the whole point of building these systems is that they do tolerate that Byzantine adversary. And maybe the fact that they have a high threshold is the reason that nobody tries to attack them because there's no, there's no point. It's inaccessible. And it really depends, uh, going back to that point about, you know, the application designers making decisions or driving decisions at some point. To what extent is that worthwhile? Because everything ends up being a trade-off at some level, right? So if we are, if we want to have a higher safety tolerance, we want to be able to say 33% of the network or 40, 50, 60% of the network could be Byzantine. What we're really saying is North Korea could buy up 50% of all of the all of the stake and control that portion of the network. 
and the network would still behave normally. Everything would be fine. Uh, and if that's what we want to tolerate, because that's what we're worried about, then, you know, we might design the system in one way, but if we actually have somebody that wants to set their, their system up for a game, and if North Korea would buy up 50% of their token and then staked it and took over 50% of the network, they might say, well, shit, that's fucking crazy. We'd much rather have lower latency 99.999% of the time. And we're not that worried about North Korea doing that, right? Uh, if that's what you want to prioritize, that's a very fair trade-off to make. Um, I, I tend to be of the perspective that it really depends on the end user applications and exposing them those trade-offs that will lead to the best overall design. And that's, you know, going back to the original point, it really depends on those end user applications. They're the only ones that can make the best decisions for those applications. And that I think is one of the reasons that this avalanche multi-chain design is great is because it puts a lot of those decisions hopefully in their hands so they can make the best decision without endangering the rest of the network. I 100% agree. I recently watched a YouTube video um, by Mark Manson, the dude who wrote the book, um, like Art of Not Giving a oh, Fuck, yeah, yeah. I think that's what it's called. And he, he uh, it was a YouTube video and it was him explaining his experience of visiting or spending 10 years abroad. Oh. So he's, he's lived significant time in South America, oh. in Asia, Africa, Europe, and he, he, pretty much grew a perspective on like how it's like to, you know, govern society and, and the different trade-offs, just like he said with in crypto, there are with, uh, let's say like how hard you are on crime, yeah. you know? So it's like, if you're in Singapore, um, there's like virtually no crime, but then you think of like, okay, like, like, why is that? Um, there's signs that set that say, if you're holding any drugs, you will be executed, you know, like, like the punishment is just extremely severe. Yeah. And so while there's less freedom, but there's no crime. And then on the flip side, let's say you go to, um, you know, he says there's places that are more family oriented, which essentially means, um, which, which has a correlation to corruption, mm -hmm. which is interesting because like the more there's family values, the more the people in charge are likely to make uh, decisions based on who's close to them and not the yeah. best. And those actually have correlations to being less hard on crime and where you have more freedoms, you can do whatever you want. But, um, you know, there's more things. But anyways, he, he's saying like everything's a trade-off. And so it's kind of like going back to the, uh, you know, the metaphor I like to use a lot in this podcast, which is, you know, we're essentially like countries or, or like city-states. It's like avalanche. We have a general set of guidelines, but for the most part, we know everybody wants to optimize for different things. And, you know, if you want to be more present in the moment and, and enjoy your, your life, then you'd, then you'd go to a, a South America type place. But if you'd like to get shit done and be optimized for security and just no nonsense, let's go in society. You're going to have more of like a, a, a Eastern culture type place. And then there's a bunch of stuff in between, yeah. um, which is also why I, you know, I, I work for, you know, I work for Avalanche, you know, so yeah. there, there's, there's a reason why uh, the, the vision attracted, attracted me because I think it's, it's just like acknowledging that you just can never be yeah. right. And I love that. I'm definitely a relativist person and have that perspective on a lot of things in life beyond just system design and beyond just blockchain. So I think I have that natural kinship with that ideology of, you know, there's nothing wrong with a family oriented society. You get these side effects. There's nothing wrong with uh, the trade off between like uh, Singapore being very strict on crime. You see a very different result there. It's not wrong. It's not right. It's very different from, you know, how I grew up in the U.S., but that's just how they, they choose to, to govern their society. There's nothing innately better or worse about it. And you see a very, very different result. Yeah. 
Um, I think that definitely that sort of kinship or like outlook on life definitely impacts me being amenable to the way that we sort of design the system of saying, yeah, this multi-chain thesis, everybody can, uh, you know, govern their own chain how they want, uh, they can make their own trade-offs. And hopefully that leads to a much greater diversity of different types of applications that you might build a different set of trade-offs you can make, which, you know, hopefully since we're in a, in a system where there's very few successful applications, if you have a greater diversity of them, hopefully you can see, all right, well, these ones will be successful. Yep. Those ones might not work out and we can see what, uh, see more competition and see what works. And there's just a greater additional dimensions along which competition and uh, experimentation can occur. So hopefully we'll see some interesting, interesting applications in uh, 2024. I know. And we are. And the number, what's the number of subnets now? It's like a hundred and something. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I, we've definitely reached that point where I'm not familiar with lot. every application that's building on Avalanche. So I don't try to keep track of it. Me too. I, yeah, dude, I, I used to be, it used to be like, um, like if, if I didn't recognize the project, I would be like, that's not on Avalanche, yeah. you know, or like, yeah, that's scam, but it, it's, we are so far past yeah. that. It's now. funny. If there was a, a time when we knew of every application that was building on Avalanche and everything was on the C chain, but then anybody, you know, there, there were the first couple of subnets like Swimmer and DFK. And I didn't know every application building on Avalanche, but I did know every subnet. And now we've gone through that point, that shift again, of mm -hmm. I don't know every subnet building on Avalanche. I actually know a, a pretty small minority of them at this point. Um, yeah. <laughs> And like a lot of our dApps on the C chain are now migrating onto the subnet. And honestly, a weird, you know, what was a weird accidental um, uh, catalyst for subnet adoption? Full circle, it was inscriptions. Yeah. Inscriptions like would like, like told all the apps that were on the C chain that were maybe even like paying for transactions yeah. that got just like destroyed by inscriptions. Like, all right, we're going on an app yeah. chain. And so that, uh, it, kind of, it kind of like proved our thesis in a, in a gross way. Yeah. <laughs> You know? Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly it, right? They want to be able to make their own trade-offs of, we do not want to be impacted by inscriptions happening here. Therefore, we're going to uh, create our own chain that prioritizes our users. That's that's sort of what everyone was saying was, we are the, everyone, what everyone wanted to say was, we are the real users because we've always been here. These other people who are paying so much for fees, they're not the real users. They're somebody different, right? Uh, which is, is not fair to them to a certain extent. But at the same time, you see, well, obviously- every, a bad country. But every yeah. individual application- should obviously prioritize their own users. And what they're seeing is that in order to do that, one of the ways that they have on Avalanche is to create their own chain. And then they can set those rules of their own accord uh, and actually make those prioritization decisions. From our perspective on the station, we're sort of bound by, there's no difference really from our perspective between the users that were here last week and the users that are using the chain in a slightly different way today. So we can make all of those changes like uh, targeting higher capacity over time and multi-dimensional fees but at the end of the day, every application wants to do the best by their users. They might want their own chain that can, they can make those very strict decisions about how to prioritize their own users. And then with uh, Avalanche Warp Messaging coming out, hopefully, it, you know, there's there's not those trade-offs of segmented liquidity yeah. and, and all that. Hopefully, if everyone, you know, develops on that the way that they, that they want and the vision reveals itself as what we think it's going to be then it just won't matter you know everything everything will be done on the back end and the app layer people can just do whatever the hell they want which i think is is the way it's going to go personally yeah, maybe we'll see an inscription so. oh i hope so yeah <laughs> we'll see i hope so i hope so what uh what, well i'll <laughs> well, ask you uh, some questions now uh what app are you most excited for okay. in uh 2024 what's uh yeah so there's okay. two there's two 
I'll go with the the first one, which is pretty obvious. I think it's shrapnel, just because they um, and I I, there's a whole podcast on like the state of the gaming industry and um where it's gonna go and like what do users want and like you know there's there's a fundamental change going on with with how games monetize right now. Uh, This podcast was actually done and set in Korea um, with a student named Nick Metzler. You should listen to that. I'll. I'll link it mm-hmm. below. I probably won't, but listen to that. Just look up Nick Metzler. Um, and he was basically like saying that like, you know, every seven to 10 years, the gaming industry fundamentally changes. Um, it went from, you know, went from arcades to then consoles. Then it went to handhelds. Then it went to like free to play games and went to MMOs and like all, all sorts of stuff. And right now we're at the very tail end of the free to play era, you know, Fortnite, um Warzone, um even like candy crush saga on mobile like a lot of those games are um i mean they're not going to go away but there's just there's need of disruption and so his prediction is that the disruption is going to be the player economy essentially and essentially that means it's the assumption that um a million 14 year olds (laughs) will if they have the ability to create content will outperform you know the best funded game um game studio in the world you know so like if you give the users enough tools and reward them to create the best content possible um it'll just literally be the great greatest game you can imagine and we've seen that in smaller cases such as like um you know gary's mod a while ago uh, minecraft we're seeing fortnite creative roblox is probably the most famous example um but shrapnel is essentially doing that for adults um and i think that's gonna be very interesting and they're like the the game, the game design, it's it's just more mature. Um, you know, you'd, you'd have to play to really understand right. what I mean. But it's slower, strategic. Um, you know, there's it, it's you you killing people, so there's that, and you know, it it, it just feels like a more mature title essentially. Right. So it's just like the branding is really more for adults, okay. uh, is what I want to say by that, and then. You know, players can create maps, players can create skins, players can do all sorts of stuff that they're incentivized to do and get rewarded for in Trap. And so I think that could just really create a interesting game. And I think maybe years down the line, it's going to be much more fleshed out. So that's one. And the other one is something called Koji AI, uh-huh. which is a unique um, NFT platform where they're basically having nft collections that are generate that are created generatively with stable diffusion models and what makes that interesting is so let's say we have a collection and it's going to be van gogh themed okay so it's the van gogh collection there's going to be a model that's trained with all of van gogh's prompts right and each time you hit the mint button it's going to be a completely random seed and there's a little text box for you to write one or two words Mm -hmm. and then it's going to appear in your collection and so it's going to be a generally cohesive collection, but each mint is going to be a little bit personalized. And I think that's just going to be very, very interesting. And people are going to do pretty fun stuff with that. And then, you know, Van Gogh is the example, but they're going to do it with like actual artists who train these models themselves and give them their own personality. And so it's just like a rare use case of where AI meets blockchain Uh uh, or modern AI. I hate that term AI, but like, I don't know, the the trendy, the current trendy AI uh, meets blockchain. I think uh, could be interesting. Cool. I think the yeah. thing that I'm most excited what about, about one thing that I've been excited about for a long time. So 
I started working in blockchain when I was uh, when I was a freshman in, in university, and even before that, I uh, I worked for this conversational AI company in Germany. And before that, I were I tried to start a startup when I was in high school, and got I met some random person on a train, was hiring people, got funding from uh, a guy that I met a while ago. Shout out to uh, Michael Kliska. Um, it was a great shout great out. And uh, then I I ended up trying to hire people on Upwork, and one of the things that I found was there's such a motivation among a small number of people, but a significant number of people who are very young and don't have access to jobs at places like Google or Facebook, but are so highly motivated and so can be so talented, speaking of people besides myself, of course. And um, there's such a, a possibility of if you give them economic opportunity, uh, opportunities to compete, to see what, just see what they can do, uh, especially if you have these broader communities that are sort of helping them along, which I think we had in the early internet in the 90s and really have very strongly in blockchain communities today. I think that's actually one of the greatest strengths mm-hmm. of blockchain communities is the amount of help that you get when you join is astronomically higher than almost any other field that you can go into. Like the level of support you get when you join a blockchain community's Discord is orders of magnitude higher than if you like were to try and become an aerospace engineer by DMing people who work at SpaceX, right? It's two completely incomparable things. Yeah. Um, but I think that the the possibility for this user-generated content or aggregated content among a large number of different people competing to build the best stuff along so many different avenues, whether that's technology applications, or even just content creation is that intersection with blockchain, I think could be really interesting. And I don't think anybody's gotten that hundred percent right yet, but I'm very hopeful that with applications like Farcast are taking off, uh, Frentech, Stars Arena, having had their runs in the past as well. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see what, what comes of that. As well as, you know, there's so many different cases that are pending right now against the, you know, trendy AI models where people are saying, no, you can't use my stuff anymore. Whether it's the New York Times saying you can't train your AI models and spit out my content or Taylor Swift and Ariana Grande saying that, I think this came out today, that TikTok can't play their music anymore without its copyright infringement. And that's just a massive blow. Uh, You know, so we'll we'll see what happens because for, for people like them it's just an abuse of their content. But for so many other artists, it's the way that they get popular. So we'll see what ends up happening. And there's so many, like yeah. there's going to be so many different interesting cases, both from a legal perspective and how this sort of shakes out in court. And also in terms of just how we as a society decide to establish norms about how these things ought to behave. Um, and I think that the possibility for blockchain to play a role there is huge. Um, it has just a lot of the properties that you want to have in order to provide a ledger of here, here's what you can use, here's what you can't, here's how you verify that everything was done correctly. Uh, and the possibility of defining the norm that things are, are done via blockchain, if we can build them to be performant enough is huge. And I think hopefully we'll see very interesting, uh, interesting use cases in 2024 of people starting to experiment with that. So I, I do think that the necessary building blocks are probably there if people are willing to make those trade-offs around, you know, optimistic confirmation to users to get that 100 millisecond latency, which will probably work in a alliance share of use cases. Uh, and there's just so many things happening in the world right now. Like the rate of technological innovation happening today in the past year yeah. is, is shocking. Uh, like, frankly, I'm scared at times. It, it's shocking. It's so many things are happening. Yeah. It can, it can very easily so get to I, I, I view it for sure. I, I think we're, I think like of all the, all the predictions that people have, that they're like scared of the future. I think 99% of them are like already in our day to day. Yeah. And what I mean by that is so, I don't know, people talk about like, I don't know, like the metaverse. 
where it's the assumption that, okay, your online um, presence is more important than your physical presence. I feel like we're, we're there without a doubt. Like, I feel like, I mean, there's like screen times, like seven hours yeah. a day on your phone. And when you're not on your phone, you're on a different yeah. screen. I mean, I, I, feel I go like in person it's, to it's an really office easy argument and then make. work on my laptop all day. Right. <laughs> to, to, and remote. Yeah. With remote. With, with most I, remote yeah, I feel company. like, yeah. Mostly remote company, right? And so I, I feel like the arguments for the, for the metaverse are like mostly we're already here. Um, if you define it as you know the online world's more important, than I think that life, and I feel like our jobs are the bad. sad thing though. And this is this is just such a trope uh, that I'll repeat because I, I think I relate to it. I think it's important. Is that there is you know it's like people talk about the epidemic of loneliness, and although it's true, I feel like the majority of my life is probably at line online at this point in a lot of ways, it can be more important than your in-person life. It's also so much less important in terms of actually providing real connection to people. And like the vast majority of yeah. my real enjoyment and satisfaction out of life derives from actually being in person in real life with people. But I, at the same time, you, you have a really good point that this metaverse or online life or second, second life that's just entirely online plays a dominant role in society today is, is huge. It's a great point. Yeah, um, but I don't think that we've gotten right about and technology, how to have the real connection or accomplish the goal that it originally have of like having a more connected yeah. world instead of a less connected world. We're more broadly connected to so many different people, but at the same time, now the world is fairly disconnected um, in terms of how people actually yeah. relate to each other. 100%. And and so that's another thing about like some, like one of the dystopian fears that are that's already happening, yeah. and I think that's also one of them. Yeah. You know, like it is so hard for like to grow up in the society, and I, I would even group myself under this of like growing up on the internet of like 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 no one really like makes it out alive. Like you're gonna get like caught or addicted to something, yeah. whether that be video games, whether that be oh like you know you get a bunch of vape advertisements, so you, you pick up yep. that. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's um, gambling, sports gambling is, it's just, you see sports gambling ads every five yeah. seconds or, and another thing is like, is like porn. The porn industry has never been more profitable. And so it's like, most people don't really make, like most people growing up, like, although you have the most opportunity you've ever had. And like, essentially it doesn't matter where you live in the world, what language you speak or what you look like, like you can make it in about any vertical in society. Yeah. Like you can be an, you can be an anon entrepreneur on Twitter. You can be an anon influencer on TikTok. Like you don't even have to speak English. Like there's people, there's like people who don't speak English who are some of the biggest influencers in the U S. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it is, those are such abnormal cases. So we have so much opportunity yet. There's so much temptation yeah. that 99% of people are going to get caught by something yeah. But the one percent that do kind of make it out unscathed are literally superheroes. Yeah. Is kind of how I see it. I think that's know? a great way to put it. Is you know, so much temptation, but also so many tools, and the vast majority of people end up feeding into the or uh, giving into the temptation instead of learning how to use to no fault of their own. Yeah, if you, yeah. if you do end up being in the one percent of people that learn how to use everything as a tool, and or use the great technology that's at our fingertips today as a tool and avoid the temptations. Yeah, you are absolutely a fucking superhero today. It's it's ridiculous, um, and the rate that it's just changing yeah, and getting better. It's just so hard. Uh, it's it's almost it's difficult to keep up too. Yeah. Like we, uh, I'm starting to use GitHub Copilot okay. now. There's GitHub Copilot Chat. Then there's the Apple Vision Pro. 
I saw somebody walking across the street with an Apple Vision Pro on TikTok. Somebody just going like, yeah. really? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's insane, man. It's Yeah. I don't know if they're a superhero. Yeah, I think so that person, I don't know if that person is a superhero, but uh, they, they certainly I don't know. We'll, we'll, it'll be seen. It'll be, it'll be, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Super villain maybe. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting, man. But I, I, I do. I think this is a great podcast, man. I really, I really enjoyed talking. Yeah. Great chat with you, man. As always, I'll, uh, not sure when I'll see you again. Maybe, uh, it might be the avalanche summit coming up. Uh, I don't know if you have any information or a spoiler or not. It's it's coming up in 2027. Yeah. (laughs) I'll see you at avalanche summit 2027. Yeah, I'll I'll be coming uh, to the office late March. So oh, yeah? if you're there, I'll okay, see cool. You. Yeah, I'll be in the office in late March, uh, yeah. almost certainly. So yeah, I'll see you then. We'll have to get some uh, some basketball. In awesome, or dude. We will, we will. I've I've I, I played uh, on Saturday. Yeah. Um, just pick up for three hours, but it's been a long time since I played, and like, like you know how it yeah. goes. Like I'm I can't move. Yeah. Like I'm so sore. My back is just yeah. destroyed. I've been getting back into it, but not nearly enough to the point where I'm actually good. So it's like, yeah. it's still fun, yeah. but it's kind of I'll never just be, be good, out there and be like, I'm fucking terrible at this. I <laughs> this know. I know. But thankfully in pickup, most people are bad. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's I know. a good thing. A good just just start making picks. That's what you do. You just make picks. Yeah, just get rebounds and play defense and everybody's your best friend. Then you're good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah man. Great chat. Uh, All right, brother. Well, I'll, great chat with you. I'm going to say goodbye to the audience real okay. quick. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll send you on your way. Right. So thank you guys so much for listening. This was uh, Aaron Buchwald. 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 Right. I feel like I've never said your last name you, before. You might not have ever said my last <laughs> uh, Buchwald. Yeah. Wow. Aaron Buchwald. But, anyways, anyways, Aaron Buchwald. <laughs> thank you so much. For getting on the podcast, this is one of the smartest guys I know. He's always a pleasure to talk to. And no matter what you're doing right now, I would really, really appreciate it if you would take the second to give this podcast a five-star review. It really helps us climb up the rankings. We're on episode 28, halfway up the mountain. Not even close. I'll probably be doing this for a lot longer. But thank you guys so much for listening. This was Aaron Buckwald. Thanks so much for having me, Avery. <laughs>